As the pandemic wears on, we're facing stress in new ways, and different people deal with it differently. Sigmund Freud's approach is described in a PBS documentary called The Question of God. During the Spanish flu epidemic, Freud's daughter Sophie died. She was 23 years old and pregnant with her third child, and it was a tragic loss. Three years later, Sophie's four-year-old son also died. And as a small coffin is lowered into the ground, the actor playing Freud speaks, and he says, I don't think I've ever experienced such grief. He meant the future to me and thus has taken the future away with him. As the deepest of unbelievers, I have no one to accuse, and I know there is no place where I can lodge an accusation. At that point, psychoanalyst and author Dr. Anna Maria Rizzuto comments, he said that there are other people that can be consoled by religion, but he doesn't have that available to him. And once more, he resorts to the same stance in relation to himself. He's going to hold himself up, going to tolerate the pain. He's going to tolerate the suffering without consolation. And that's what he's accepted. Life is hard and he will take it. I wonder how many of you relate to his approach to pain and suffering. Some of you may relate because you don't have a vital faith in God to sustain you. But you may relate to him because you've never really been taught how to face your trials in a distinctively Christian way, in a biblical way. Beyond asking God to take your trials away, you may have never learned how to lay hold of God when it feels like the world's against you. Today, I'd like to look at four key emotions that we feel when the trials are raw and when what the Bible says to do with them. We'll look at pain, guilt, anger, and hope, and how we can process those feelings in ways that will help us and ultimately honor God. At this point, I'd encourage you to pause the video and open to Psalm 69. I'll be reading uh, today in four sections from it as we consider each of those four emotions. Uh, let's start with the opening verses. Uh, I'll read from verses one to three. Psalm 69, verses one to three. To the choir master, according to, the, to lilies of David. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there's no foothold. I've come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I'm weary with crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. Now, it's probably not the most polite prayer you've ever heard. You can almost hear David shouting as you read the words, Save me, O God! His circumstances make him feel like he's drowning. The waters are up to his neck, and below, all he's got to look for is quicksand. Nothing for him to get a foothold on. In verse 2, there are waves of water that are sweeping over his head. He's been shouting and praying and calling out to God for so long that his throat is dry and hoarse. His eyes are bloodshot with waiting. And it's a brutally honest expression of David's pain and his frustration. 
But David's taken time to compose these words in a poem. And the heading tells us that this was a psalm that was sung in Israel's worship. So it's also intended to teach us how to deal with our pain. Christians aren't supposed to be Stoics. God wants a more personal relationship than that. He wants the kind of relationship where we share the reality of our feelings and are honest with our pain. And the thing that makes our pain so painful is often we will bottle it up inside or, or we just don't have anyone to share it with. God wants us to share it with him. Now, as you look at the rest of the psalm, you can see why David's hurting so much. As you look to verse 9, he talks about that zeal for your house has consumed me. He says, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. It's a verse that's spoken of when Jesus, when he drives out those money changers from the temple. But here, it's likely referring to David's passion to prepare for the temple's construction. He dedicated the latter part of his life to acquiring materials and workers to build a temple that would be worthy of God's glory. And sometimes a singular focus like that can be misunderstood. In fact, in verse 10, when he weeps and fasts in prayer, people mock him for it. When he humbles himself in repentance by wearing sackcloth, they make jokes about him. People make fun of his faith and his devotion. And then in verse 12, he explains how the power brokers are gossiping about his problems. And the commoners have turned his misfortunes into drinking songs. That hurts. That hurts because our tendency is to think that when we do the right things, people will appreciate us for it. God will smooth our path and things will go our way. But according to the Bible, life doesn't always work like that. Sometimes the answer to our prayers is no. Sometimes we take a bullet just because we're standing for God. And sometimes life feels deeply unfair. And while God doesn't deny the reality of that, he does offer a listening ear. He wants us to be honest with our pain. He wants the kind of relationship where we can be real with him. Leah Granick and Megan O'Rourke conducted a survey of grief with over 10,000 people. They said that many respondents talked about how uncomfortable talking about their pain made others feel. And the message seemed to be that they should just get over it. They said that the key may be as simple as our human need to feel we are not alone when grief gets unbearable. God wants us to be honest with our pain. Maybe you talk to him about it in prayer. Maybe you write it out the way David is. You don't have to be a great poet to do that. Freud didn't have anyone in his suffering to look for for consolation. But that doesn't have to be true of you. Be honest with God about your pain. Share it with him. Now, pain isn't the only emotion you need to deal with in your suffering. You also need to sort out your guilt. Guilt almost inevitably surfaces in the Psalms of Lament, and I see it in my counseling as well. When things go wrong, we usually find ourselves asking, was it my fault? Could I have done things differently? Even if we don't do the asking, people often will place that blame on us. Listen to how David sorts out his guilt in verses 4 and 5. He says, 
More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore? O oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Now in verse 5, David examines his heart and he acknowledges his sin. He knows that he can't fool God or hide from him. And so he's confessed and turned from his sin in his life as best he knows how. But being guilty of something isn't the same as being guilty of everything. And so he tries to objectively evaluate the, the attacks that he's facing. And he says, they hate me without cause. They attack me with lies. You can feel the exasperation when he says, what I did not steal must I now restore? Being so heavily involved in preparation for the temple construction, there may have been some groups who felt their projects were being neglected. Or maybe they saw it as an opportunity to charge David with misappropriating funds. Even after he's protested his innocence, they're demanding repayment. Condemnation often likes to attach itself to painful circumstances. So it's important to sort out your feelings of guilt. In Revelation 12.10, Satan is called the accuser, and it talks of him accusing the children of God day and night. If you're going through something painful and you let false guilt latch on, it'll pull you under. And so it's crucial to understand what is Satan's accusation and What's the Holy Spirit's conviction? Now, God's word can help with that. Uh, prayer can help with that. And sometimes you need a Christian friend to give you perspective. But one of the simplest places to start is by digging into the feeling itself. Satan's condemnation will usually be vague and defeating, while the Holy Spirit will be specific, and he intends to help you to change. Don't let guilt multiply your pain. Sort it out. Be honest with your pain. Sort out your guilt. And then, finally, let God act on your anger. David shows us that if we're going to go through serious trials, we're going to be confronted by feelings of anger. Now, feeling the anger may be entirely appropriate, but acting on that anger almost never is. David shows us how to let God act on our anger. Let me read the portion of David's prayer from verses 22 to 28. Let their own table before them become a snare, and when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents, for they persecute him whom you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. Now, this may not sound like the warmest prayer, and, and you may think this doesn't even have a rightful place in the Bible. But what David's doing here is letting his anger out rather than harboring it in in bitterness. He's asking God to bring justice and set things back in moral order. 
And it's not arbitrary. So for example, in verse 22, when he talks about, let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. He's asking God to deal with them the way they dealt with him. He mentions their table because as he explained in verse 21, they gave him poison for food and sour wine to drink. The word used there for food is unusual. It was a food that was brought to the sickbed. It was a comfort food you brought to someone who was suffering. Except the comfort food that David's enemies brought him was poison. If you've experienced that kind of pain and abuse, you should be experiencing feelings of anger. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. God hates sin, and so it would be wrong for us not to. Feeling the anger is appropriate, but acting on it seldom is. So David lets his anger out in prayer. He asks God to act on his anger because he knows that if he holds on to that anger, Satan will use it in his life. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. If we harbor our anger, it'll stew in bitterness. It'll grow. So we ask God to deal with it. That's what's happening in this section of David's prayer. In verse 24, when he asks God, pour out your indignation and let your burning anger overtake them. He's asking God to deal with his anger. He's asking God for justice. And while that may sound harsh, if you don't bring and or ask God to bring justice, you'll end up becoming the vigilante. You'll set out to bring judgment yourself and we always get judgment wrong. This may sound counterintuitive to you, but asking God to bring justice is what frees us up to actually forgive our enemies. When I know that God is going to judge people's sin, it frees me up from having to judge them. And I can be gracious. I can be patient. So if you've been hurt deeply, don't bury your anger. Don't deny your anger. Don't act out on your anger either. Instead, let God act on your anger. Ask him to bring perfect justice so you can show mercy. Now, so far we've said that when it feels like the world's against you, you've got to deal with your feelings. You be honest with your pain, you sort out your guilt, and you let God act on your anger. But finally, you lay hold of your hope. The temptation is to tell yourself, I've been through too much pain to hope. I've had too much guilt heaped on me to hope. I've got too much anger to hope. But that turns hope into something that we tell each other just when times are good. But our hope is for times when life is hard and doesn't make sense. Now is the time to lay hold of hope, lay hold of God. Watch how David does that in verses 30 to 36. He says, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people 
who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. Now, you might feel as if this part of the prayer was written by a, a different person altogether. But trying to cope with the difficulties of the present doesn't mean we stop praising God for who he is and trusting him for what he'll do. I, I love it in verse 30 where he says, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. There's a determination in his voice. Right now, his throat is parched from crying out to God, but he's convinced that God will turn his crying into singing. He looks forward to the day when he can testify again to God's hand in his life. The word magnify in verse 30 is interesting. John Piper says that when we magnify God, we're acting like telescopes, not microscopes. Because there are two types of magnifying, right? Microscopes make something small seem bigger than it is. But telescopes help people see things as they are. You think of the Hubble telescope and how it displays the wonders of the universe. David's saying, that's what I'll do for God. I'll help people to see him as he is. I'll give thanks to him so that everyone can see how glorious a God we have. And then in verse 31, he adds, this will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. Now, a, bu a bull with horns and hooves was a full-grown, mature bull. It was the most expensive sacrifice you could make. And David's saying, my praise, my heartfelt gratitude and testimony to God, that brings delight to him. It's more valuable, more precious than oxen or bulls. Brings God pleasure when we trust him in hard times. It also strengthens the faith of those around us. When you get to verse 32, David says, When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. We've all been touched by the strength of faith that we've seen in people who trusted God in hard times. It builds us up. It strengthens our resolve. Now, that doesn't mean that we fake it. It doesn't mean that we pretend we have it all together when we don't. We want to be real. But it does encourage us to seek God and lay hold of our hope because it matters. It, it affects other people. And it doesn't just matter to the people around us. According to verse 34, heaven and earth rejoice when we trust in God. It says, let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. Jesus said that there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And there's a celebration in heaven when you hope in God when times are tough. Now, people like Freud say, if God won't take away the suffering and injustice of this world, I won't believe in him. God doesn't promise to take away this world's suffering. But he did enter into our world of suffering so that we wouldn't be alone. In fact, Psalm 69 is the second most quoted psalm in the entire New Testament because it reflects so much of Jesus' life. So when you feel like 
the waters have come up to your neck and you're weary with crying out, know that Jesus went through the same for you. When it feels like people hate you without cause, Jesus knows how you feel. He knows the pain of loss, the agony of sickness, and the sting of injustice. He's the Savior to whom they gave sour wine to drink before they killed him. When you put your faith in Jesus, you're not immune, but you're not alone either. And while God doesn't promise to take away this world's suffering, he does invite us to a life to come that is free from suffering. He promises eternal life to all who turn to Jesus Christ. He promises a coming day in Revelation 21.4, where it says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall, shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. That hope gave the German pastor Martin Rinkart strength to endure. He served in the town of Eilenburg during the 30 years, 30 years War of 1618 to 1648. Because of its fortifications, Eilenburg had become an overcrowded refuge to the surrounding villages. And people suffered from epidemic and famine. At the beginning of 1637, in the year of the Great Pestilence, there were four ministers in Eilenburg. One by one, they all left for healthier areas. Only Rinkart remained. As the only pastor left, he conducted funeral services for as many as 50 people a day. By the time it was all over, he had led over 4,000 funerals, including that of his own wife. Surely he dealt with feelings of pain, of guilt, and anger. But as he did, he laid hold of hope, and he found hope in a Savior who understood his suffering. He left this prayer for his children to offer to the Lord, and it became a well-known hymn. It's, it goes like this, Now thank we all our God, with hearts and hands and voices, who wondrous things has done, in whom this world rejoices who from our mother's arms has blessed us on our way with countless gifts of love and still is ours today. His response to suffering couldn't be more different than Sigmund Freud. He gives us courage to lay hold of a savior who meets us in our trials. And so if you feel like the waters are coming up to your neck and the waves are sweeping over you, then deal with your emotions. Be honest with your pain in prayer before God. Let him know how it hurts. He cares for you. Then sort out your guilt. Accept God's conviction and repentance, but reject the false guilt and condemnation that Satan piles on when you're feeling down. Then let God act on your anger. Feeling anger towards sin is appropriate, but acting out on that anger almost never is. Finally, lay hold of your hope. This is a time to lean into your faith. Find your peace and your strength in the Savior who died for you. Let's look to him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, there's so much in this world that causes us pain. So much that seems unjust and
and we can get angry. We can get angry at people, angry at our circumstances, and we confess that sometimes we get angry at you. Father, we know that you're the one who will set all things right, and so we give our anger into your hands. We give you our pain, and we thank you for meeting us in it. We trust you with judgment. We trust you with avenging sin, of making this world right, because we know that when we take judgment into our own hands, we always get it wrong. We often make things worse. Father, I pray for those who have maybe never known a God who would meet them in their trials those who feel completely alone, I pray that you'd minister to them. I pray that you would draw near and that they would call out to you. I pray that they would look to you. And I pray that you'd minister your hope in their life. Help all of us to lay hold of your hope. Help us to magnify you before a watching world to show this world how great you are, how glorious your grace is, how great your love is. For we ask you in Jesus' name, amen. Now, I sincerely hope that many of you are not feeling any of the pain that this psalm describes, but the time will probably come when you do. And there are likely people you know who could use the encouragement. So share this message with someone you care about. Pick up the phone and reach out to lift, some, lift someone up. And as always, for more messages of hope, visit www.gracebc.ca. God bless and see you next time.